History of England, Chapter 10, Part 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England, from the Accession of James II, by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 10 Part 6. It has often been asked, in a reproachful tone, why the invitation was not extended to the members of the Parliament which had been dissolved in the preceding year. The answer is obvious. One of the chief grievances of which the nation complained was the manner in which that Parliament had been elected. The majority of the burgesses had been returned by constituent bodies remodelled in a manner which was generally regarded as illegal, and which the prince had, in his declaration, condemned. James himself had, just before his downfall, consented to restore the old municipal franchises. It would surely have been the height of inconsistency in William, after taking up arms for the purpose of vindicating the invaded charters of corporations, to recognise persons chosen in defiance of those charters as the legitimate representatives of the towns of England. On Saturday the 22nd, the Lords met in their own house. That day was employed in settling the order of proceeding. A clerk was appointed, and... As no confidence could be placed in any of the twelve judges, some surgeons and barristers of great note were requested to attend, for the purpose of giving advice on legal points. It was resolved that on the Monday the state of the kingdom should be taken into consideration. The interval between the sitting of Saturday and the sitting of Monday was anxious and eventful. A strong party among the peers still cherished the hope that the constitution and religion of England might be secured without the deposition of the king. This party resolved to move a solemn address to him, imploring him to consent to such terms as might remove the discontents and apprehensions which his past conduct had excited. Sancroft, who since the return of James from Kent to Whitehall, had taken no part in public affairs, determined to come forth from his retreat on this occasion, and to put himself at the head of the royalists. Several messengers were sent to Rochester with letters for the king. He was assured that his interests would be strenuously defended, if only he could, at this last moment, make up his mind to renounce designs abhorred by his people. Some respectable Roman Catholics followed him, in order to implore him, for the sake of their common faith, not to carry the vain contest further. The advice was good, but James was in no condition to take it. His understanding had always been dull and feeble, and, such as it was, Womanish tremors and childish fancies now disabled him from using it. He was aware that his flight was the thing which his adherents most dreaded and which his enemies most desired. 
Even if there had been serious personal risk in remaining, the occasion was one on which he ought to have thought it infamous to flinch. For the question was whether he and his posterity should reign on an ancestral throne or should be vagabonds and beggars. But in his mind all other feelings had given place to a craven fear for his life, to the earnest entreaties and unanswerable arguments of the agents whom his friends had sent to Rochester, he had only one answer. His head was in danger. In vain he was assured that there was no ground for such an apprehension, that common sense, if not principle, would restrain the Prince of Orange from incurring the guilt and shame of regicide and parricide, and that many who never would consent to dispose their sovereign while he remained on English ground, would think themselves absolved from their allegiance by his desertion. Fright overpowered every other feeling. James determined to depart, and it was easy for him to do so. He was negligently guarded. All persons were suffered to repair to him. Vessels ready to put to sea lay at no great distance, and their boats might come close to the garden of the house in which he was lodged. Had he been wise, the pains which his keepers took to facilitate his escape would have sufficed to convince him that he ought to stay where he was. In truth, the snare was so ostentatiously exhibited that it could impose on nothing but folly, bewildered by terror. The arrangements were expediously made. On the evening of Saturday the 22nd, the king assured some of the gentlemen, who had been sent to him from London with intelligence and advice, that he would see them again in the morning. He went to bed rose at dead of night, and, attended by Berwick, stole out at a back door, and went through the garden to the shore of the Medway. A small skiff was in waiting. Soon after the dawn of Sunday, the fugitives were on board of a smack, which was running down the Thames. That afternoon the tidings of the flight reached London. The king's adherents were confounded, the Whigs could not conceal their joy. The good news encouraged the prince to take a bold and important step. He was informed that communications were passing between the French embassy and the party hostile to him. It was well known that at that embassy all the arts of corruption were well understood, and there could be little doubt that, at such a conjuncture, neither intrigues nor pistols would be spared. Berillion was most desirous to remain a few days longer in London, and for that end omitted no art which could conciliate the victorious party. In the streets he quieted the populace, who looked angrily at his coach, by throwing money among them. At his table he publicly drunk the health of the Prince of Orange. But William was not to be so cajoled. He had not, indeed, taken on himself to exercise regal authority, but he was a general and, as such, 
he was not bound to tolerate within the territory of which he had taken military occupation the presence of one whom he regarded as a spy before that day closed berillion was informed that he must leave england within twenty-four hours he begged hard for a short delay but minutes were precious the order was repeated in more peremptory terms and he unwillingly set off for dover that no mark of contempt and defiance might be omitted he was escorted to the coast by one of his protestant countrymen whom persecution had driven into exile so bitter was the resentment excited by the french ambition and arrogance that even those englishmen who were not generally disposed to take a favourable view of William's conduct, loudly applauded him for retorting with so much spirit the insolence with which Lewis had, during many years, treated every court in Europe. On Monday the Lords met again. Halifax was chosen to preside. The primate was absent, the royalists sad and gloomy the Whigs eager and in high spirits. It was known that James had left a letter behind him. Some of his friends moved that it might be produced, in the faint hope that it might contain propositions which might furnish a basis for a happy settlement. On this motion the previous question was put and carried. Godolphin, who was known not to be unfriendly to his old master, uttered a few words which were decisive. I have seen the paper, he said, and I grieve to say that there is nothing in it which will give your lordships any satisfaction. In truth, it contained no expression of regret for past errors. It held out no hope that those errors would for the future be avoided, and it threw the blame of all that had happened on the malice of William and on the blindness of a nation deluded by the specious names of religion and property. None ventured to propose that a negotiation should be opened with a prince whom the most rigid discipline of adversity seemed only to have made more obstinate in wrong. Something was said about inquiring into the birth of the Prince of Wales, but the Whig peers treated the suggestion with disdain. I did not expect, my lords, exclaimed Philip Lord Wharton, an old roundhead who had commanded a regiment against Charles I at Edgehill. I did not expect to hear anybody at this time of day mention the child who was called Prince of Wales, and I hope that we have now heard the last of him. After long discussion, it was resolved that two addresses should be presented to William. One address requested him to take on himself provisionally the administration of the government. The other recommended that he should, by circular letters subscribed with his own hand, invite all the constituent bodies of the kingdom to send up representatives to Westminster. At the same time, the peers took upon themselves to issue an order banishing all papists, except a few privileged persons, from London and the vicinity. 
the lords presented their addresses to the prince on the following day, without waiting for the issue of the deliberations of the commoners whom he had called together. It seems, indeed, that the hereditary nobles were disposed at this moment to be punctilious in asserting their dignity, and were unwilling to recognize a coordinate authority in an assembly unknown to the law. They conceived that they were a real house of lords. The other chamber they despised as only a mock house of commons. William, however, wisely excused himself from coming to any decision till he had ascertained the sense of the gentleman who had formerly been honoured with the confidence of the counties and towns of England. The commoners who had been summoned met in St. Stephen's Chapel and formed a numerous assembly. They placed in the chair Henry Powell, who had represented Cirencester in several parliaments and had been eminent among the supporters of the exclusion bill. Addresses were proposed and adopted similar to those which the Lords had already presented. No difference of opinion appeared on any serious question, and some feeble attempts which were made to raise a debate on points of form were put down by the general contempt. Sir Robert Sawyer declared that he could not conceive how it was possible for the prince to administer the government without such distinguishing title, such as regent or protector. Old Maynard, who, as a lawyer, had no equal, and who was also a politician, versed in the tactics of revolutions, was at no pains to conceal his disdain for so puerile an objection taken at a moment when union and promptitude were of the highest importance. We shall sit here very long, he said, if we sit till Sir Robert can conceive how such a thing is possible, and the assembly thought the answer as good as the cavil deserved. The resolutions of the meeting were communicated to the prince, he forthwith announced his determination to comply with the joint request of the two chambers which he had called together, to issue letters summoning a convention of the estates of the realm, and, till the convention should meet, to take on himself the executive administration. He had undertaken no light task. The whole machine of government was disordered. The justices of the peace had abandoned their functions. The officers of the revenue had ceased to collect the taxes. The army which Feversham had disbanded was still in confusion and ready to break out into mutiny. The fleet was in a scarcely less alarming state. Large arrears of pay were due to the civil and military servants of the crown and only forty thousand pounds remained in the exchequer. The prince addressed himself with vigour to the work of restoring order. He published a proclamation by which all magistrates were continued in office, and another containing orders for the collection of the revenue. The new modelling of the army went rapidly on, 
Many of the noblemen and gentlemen whom James had removed from the command of the English regiments were reappointed. A way was found of employing the thousands of Irish soldiers whom James had brought into England. They could not safely be suffered to remain in a country where they were objects of religious and national animosity. They could not safely be sent home to reinforce the army of Triconnell. It was therefore determined that they should be sent to the continent, where they might, under the banners of the House of Austria, render indirect but effectual service to the cause of the English constitution and of the Protestant religion. Dartmouth was removed from his command, and the navy was conciliated by assurances that every sailor should speedily receive his due. The city of London undertook to extricate the prince from his financial difficulties. The common council, by a unanimous vote, engaged to find him two hundred thousand pounds. It was thought a great proof both of the wealth and of the public spirit of the merchants of the capital, that, in forty-eight hours, the whole sum was raised on no security but the prince's word. A few weeks before, James had been unable to procure a much smaller sum, though he had offered to pay higher interest and to pledge valuable property. In a very few days, the confusion which the invasion the insurrection, the flight of James, and the suspension of all regular government had produced was at an end, and the kingdom wore again its accustomed aspect. There was a general sense of security. Even the classes which were most obnoxious to public hatred, and which had most reason to apprehend a persecution, were protected by the politic clemency of the conqueror, Persons deeply implicated in the illegal transactions of the late reign not only walked the streets in safety, but offered themselves as candidates for seats in the convention. Mulgrave was received not ungraciously at St. James. Feversham was released from arrest and was permitted to resume the only office for which he was qualified that of keeping the bank at the Queen Dowager's basset table. But no body of men had so much reason to feel grateful to William as the Roman Catholics. It would not have been safe to rescind formally the severe resolutions which the peers had passed against the professors of a religion generally abhorred by the nation, but by the prudence and humanity of the prince. Those resolutions were practically annulled. On his line of march from Torbay to London, he had given orders that no outrage should be committed on the persons or dwellings of Papists. He now renewed those orders, and directed Burnett to see that they were strictly obeyed. A better choice could not have been made, for Burnett was a man of such generosity and good nature that his heart always warmed towards the unhappy, and at the same time his known hatred of popery 
was a sufficient guarantee to the most zealous Protestants that the interests of their religion would be safe in his hands. He listened kindly to the complaints of the Roman Catholics, procured passports for those who wished to go beyond sea, and went himself to Newgate to visit the prelates who were in prison there. He ordered them to be removed to a more commodious apartment, and supplied with every indulgence. He solemnly assured them that not a hair on their heads should be touched, and that, as soon as the prince could venture to act as he wished, they should be set at liberty. The Spanish minister reported to his government, and, through his government, to the Pope, that no Catholic need feel any scruple of conscience on account of the late revolution in England, that for the danger to which the members of the true church were exposed, James alone was responsible, and that William alone had saved them from a sanguinary persecution. There was, therefore, little alloy to the satisfaction with which the princes of the House of Austria and the sovereign pontiff learned that the long vassalage of England was at an end. When it was known at Madrid that William was in the full career of success, a single voice in the Spanish Council of State faintly expressed regret that an event which, in a political point of view, was most auspicious, should be prejudicial to the interests of the true church. But the tolerant policy of the prince soon quieted all scruples, and his elevation was seen with scarcely less satisfaction by the bigoted grandees of Castile than by the English Whigs. With very different feelings had the news of this great revolution been received in France. The politics of a long, eventful, and glorious reign had been confounded in a day. England was again the England of Elizabeth and of Cromwell, and all the relations of all the states of Christendom were completely changed by the sudden introduction of this new power into the system. The Parisians could talk of nothing but what was passing in London. National and religious feeling impelled them to take the part of James. They knew nothing of the English constitution. They abominated the English church. Our revolution appeared to them not as the triumph of public liberty over despotism, but as a frightful domestic tragedy in which a venerable and pious Servius was hurled from his throne by a Tarquin and crushed under the chariot wheels of Italia. They cried shame on the traitorous captains, execrated the unnatural daughters, and regarded William with a mortal loathing, tempered, however, by the respect which valour, capacity, and success seldom fail to inspire. The queen, exposed to the night wind and rain, with the infant heir of three crowns clasped to her breast, the king stopped, robbed, and outraged by ruffians, were objects of pity and of romantic interest to all France. But Lewis saw with peculiar emotion 
the calamities of the house of Stuart. All the selfish and all the generous parts of his nature were moved alike. After many years of prosperity, he had at length met with a great check. He had reckoned on the support or neutrality of England. He had now nothing to expect from her but energetic and potatious hostility. A few weeks earlier he might not unreasonably have hoped to subjugate Flanders and to give law to Germany. At present he might think himself fortunate if he should be able to defend his own frontiers against a confederacy such as Europe had not seen during many ages. From this position, so new, so embarrassing, so alarming, nothing but a counter-revolution or a civil war in the British islands could extricate him. He was therefore impelled by ambition and by fear to espouse the cause of the fallen dynasty, and it is but just to say that motives nobler than ambition or fear had a large share in determining his course. His heart was naturally compassionate, and this was an occasion which could not fail to call forth all his compassion. His situation had prevented his good feelings from fully developing themselves. Sympathy is rarely strong where there is a great inequality of condition, and he was raised so high above the mass of his fellow creatures that their distresses excited in him only a languid pity, such as that with which we regard the sufferings of the inferior animals, of a famished redbreast or of an overdriven post-horse. The devastation of the Palatinate and the persecution of the Huguenots had therefore given him no uneasiness which pride and bigotry could not effectually soothe. But all the tenderness of which he was capable was called forth by the misery of a great king who had a few weeks ago been served on the knee by lords, and who was now a destitute exile. With that tenderness was mingled in the soul of Lewis a not ignoble vanity. He would exhibit to the world a pattern of munificence and courtesy. He would show mankind what ought to be the bearing of a perfect gentleman in the highest station and on the greatest occasion. And, in truth, his conduct was marked by a chivalrous generosity and urbanity, such as had not embellished the annals of Europe since the black prince had stood behind the chair of King John at the supper on the field courtiers. End of chapter 10, part 6